Welcome to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your co-host. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Jacob Smith, the rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. He and I will be your guide every Tuesday to a grace-infused, cosmopolitan look at the lectionary passages for the week. We'll do our best to help both pastors and churchgoers alike to connect the never-changing truth of God's grace as found in these texts with what feels like an ever-changing and sometimes confusing world, and we'll do that all in 25 minutes or less. Jake, we're back at it once again. We're in Epiphany 2. Epiphany is such an interesting word. It is. I think if we were to use the modern parlance, we would call it uh, the season of Eureka, the season where we are brought face to face with the revelation that God in Christ is your Savior. Well, I'm, I think Eureka, well, what if, how would we make a movement for a liturgical change? <laughs> like, hey, we're going with Eureka Sunday now. Epiphany's yeah. out, Eureka's and, out. And uh, the liturgical color is officially paisley. So, but... um. Uh, yeah, that'd I be like cool. That. Um, I, but uh, it is because the truth is, is that what, what makes this uh, season significant is, is that it reminds us that this isn't a revelation that we've come up with. Uh, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven to quote Jesus. And so this is uh, a revelation of God as your savior, not as your judge, not as your life coach, but um, what we need most in life. And so we kick off right into, uh, once again, uh, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 7. Yeah, Isaiah 49, this is, uh, when it, the, there's several passages from Isaiah. Well, Isaiah 49 is really, it's the beginning of what some would call the second servant song, but um, uh, it really is kind of uh, building off of what uh, Isaiah says earlier in this prophecy, out of uh, the stump of Jesse, a shoot shall spring forth. And really, this illustrates that, um, you know, um, the new Israel will be one Israelite. And uh, really, this is the running theme of the Gospel of Matthew throughout the liturgical year. But the new Israel, the new servant, um, the one who will lead the nations, will uh, just, the entire nation is being reduced to one man and uh, one servant. And uh, as we see here, this is the revelation, this is the epiphany, that Israel itself needs saving. And so there's kind of this paradox here going on in this chapter of Israel coming to save and to evangelize Israel. Yeah, and I, you know, it's interesting because later on in this passage, this mention of that God will not forget Israel like any more than a mother will forget her mm. child. It, it, that's mm-hmm. down at like verse 15 or 14. That's right. And, uh, and in- indeed we see this. So this, I mean, really what this revelation, this epiphany uh, calls us to do is, and what it called the hearers to do is look forward to the Messiah, the one uh, Jesus, as he says in Matthew chapter 15, verses 24, you know, I have come to the nation of Israel first, the house of Israel first. He tells that to the Syrophoenician woman. And uh, she responds, um, you know, but even even the dogs get to eat the scraps from their master's table. And uh, this is a really, this really draws us to kind of knowing who we are and that um, all of us need uh, someone um, 
to come and save us. And so, and so we see this, that uh, uh, indeed, uh, and all of these things find their fulfillment, especially kind of are connected to Jesus's baptism with him coming up out of the water. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. You know, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. And uh, well, that didn't happen with the remnant either. And so it happens in this one uh, new servant, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I, I might actually do this tonight. I might I might reference go down and reference verse fifteen. Yeah, go ahead. There's, there, and sixteen because you you know you have this beautiful image. You know, can a woman forget her nursing child or show no or compassion show no, for the child of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Then he says, "See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me." Now it's interesting because in the ancient world, sometimes a servant would get the master's name or a symbol tattooed on them, but never the master, the servant. Mm. And it's interesting after Jesus' resurrection appearance, second appearance where Thomas was sort of excluded from the first one, what is Thomas has to see the engraving. Mm. He has to see the scars. And so the comfort is that God is, it's really interesting in the book, Silence and Beauty, which is Makoto's book about a novel, Silence, which just made it into a film. He said that one of the things that Endo said is that the problem with the mission to Japan was there was not a stress on the motherly love of God, the unaccepting, unconditional, unswerving, tender, maternal love of God. And that too much was a sort of uh, paternal and cold love. And so here, I think the suffering servant is one that reminds us that God is the father that loves us mm. like a mother. So I was speaking to a young minister who was asking me about what commentaries they should buy uh, for part of their library for preaching, and um, said, if you don't have a big book budget, the IVP Bible Commentary is a great place. Just, I mean, it's it's filled with lots of nuggets. There's some, there, there are some really good things here to read. And uh, the commentary on this particular chapter, uh, it says this, the paradox of an Israel sent to Israel is part of the powerful thrust of the Old Testament towards the New Testament. Since not even the remnant of true Israelites can fulfill the boundless expectations of verses 1 through 13, we are driven to seek a more perfect embodiment of God's light, salvation, and covenant in Christ at the head of his church, the Israel of God. And uh, I think uh, and I think that this is what this passage ultimately does. If you're going to preach it, you have to eventually land the plane in Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen to that. On to 1 Corinthians 1, 1-9. Now, 1 Corinthians, right now we're in an interesting thing because we're going to be in the, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians for the next five weeks, actually through the season of Epiphany until the last Sunday of Epiphany, which is always trans, like emphasizes the transfiguration. But if you were to kind of, if you wanted to do a sermon series, if you will, that would be faithful to the lectionary, now's a good time to do it and to walk through 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is a very important chapter because it speaks a lot to where most of our congregation is at. You know, in, um, in Corinth, they had a, a temple dedicated to Aphrodites, which was love. And they also had a, a temple dedicated to Asclepius, which was the god of healing and miracles. And, you know, and that's what most people think uh, Christianity and religion is all about. It's all about uh, free love and healing. And, uh, and Paul really addresses this in this particular epistle. 
Yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, everybody reads chapter 13 at weddings, which is really funny. Love is patient, love is kind. But what's funny is that everything Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 is things that he has said that they aren't in the previous 12 chapters. They're not patient. They're not kind. They're self-seeking. So everybody reads it kind of romantically when actually Paul's saying, hey, this is the opposite of, you know, it's like the Corinthians look at this list and do the opposite, like Seinfeld. Jerry, I will do the opposite. (laughs) But what's funny is he begins the letter of this church. This is why also people say, like, I want to go back to being a New Testament Christian. Be careful because you might become <laughs> yeah, a Corinthian. That's, but, like, that's really a bad Paul's, idea. I tell people all the time. The uh, early church was really screwed up. And uh, Corinthians is an example of that. Yeah. and he But he starts mm-hmm. off saying that they are the church of God in Corinth, that they are sanctified in Jesus Christ and called to sainthood together with all of those who in every place call on the name of Jesus and expresses grace for them and assures them of what they have in Christ, even now that is seemingly <laughs> in tension with their life on the ground. And I want to quote, uh, if you're looking for background on this, I want to quote the great Jacob Smith in an essay in the Mockingbird magazine, which I want to point everybody to, which is called Straight Out of Corinth what the church can learn from NWA. (laughs) And in it, Reverend Smith, you say, the church is not exempt from this low anthropology. It is sadly humorous to pontificate about the virtues of the early church. The early church was a mess filled with sinners. St. Paul in his first epistle to the Corinthians points that out. Paul lets them know they are far from a pious community, that there's some morality that shocks even the pagans. This is very important to understand, anthropologically speaking, There's no difference between Christians and non-Christians. When the church forgets this truth, she gets herself into all sorts of trouble. Instead of making herself irrelevant, the church that has an NWA anthropology has something to say and can speak to the culture at large. A church with a low anthropology can see herself as part of the problem and in humility share the good news of God's grace. A church with a low anthropology is not shocked by the sin of the world, but can minister to people Dope man and gangsta alike, free of judgment and assumption. My friends, I give you Jacob Smith's wonderful essay. I would commend all preachers. That I would commend the entire essay to all preachers dealing with this text. Thank you, Scott. You're making me blush. But uh, um, <laughs> I have that effect. But on I people. do think that uh, this is a very powerful. Uh, this this section of First Corinthians is very powerful in the sense of making us aware of uh, of how to treat people pastorally. You know, most people think that Christianity is about becoming something. Um, you know, uh, you know, you've got to do this to become that. And then what Paul points out here is that, no, no, it's be who you already are. And he's got some key words here. He says, you know, the grace of God that was given to you in Christ, um, you were enriched in him in all speech so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The point is, is that this has already been completed. They are already justified. They are already sanctified. And, uh, and God is working on them, and, uh, and it's about being who they already are. And I think the indicatives in this, especially these first nine verses, is key especially as you're preaching and doing pastoral care. And to remember, because everybody, a lot of Pentecostals want to focus here on the spiritual gifts and such, but we have to remember that spiritual gifts come out of 
gospel declaration, not the other way around. You don't demonstrate gifts in order to prove that God loves you. Uh, rather, uh, God loves you and f- coming forth from that love and from that grace. That's the epiphany here is that, uh, is that spiritual gifts come. And, uh, and that's the upside down sense of the epiphany passage, the eureka moment here is that it's not about earning something. It's about what's already been given to you completely in Christ. Be who you are. Richard Lovelace, who is a church historian at Gordon-Conwell, I don't know if he still teaches there, if he's retired now, but he's one of his books, he says, it's an item in faith that we are children of God. There's plenty of experience in us against it. The faith that surmounts this evidence and is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love, instead of having to steal love and self-acceptance from other sources, is actually the root of holiness. Amen. And on to our gospel reading, which is one of my four favorite gospels, the Gospel of John. <laughs> That's good. I love it. Well, well, I don't like the Gnostic one so much. No, so not at all. Good. So here, you know what's interesting to note, too, is that one of the differences in this passage from the things like the Gnostic gospels is these is, is so much historical mm. detail. You know, they're not they're not abstract. I mean, there there are there is theological reflection and imaginative interpretation, but there's all they're always anchoring themselves in places like Bethany or all the you know and people you have these conversations with you know siblings and things like this. There's a very there's a concrete nature to the canonical gospels that you don't see in the Gnostic gospels. And that's one of the reasons why the church canonized <laughs> certain gospels and not others, because the incarnation is about the world as it really mm-hmm. is. And God enters into it in all of its particularity, not in a mythical kind of abstraction. Uh, a couple of years ago in the Washington Post, there was a, an article about, um, uh, speaking of Star Wars, and you know, um, it was talking about how the first three uh, Four, five, and six. If those are kind of the the foundation of Star Wars, if those are the uh, original Gospels, then one, two, and three, with all of its CGI effect, are Gnostic Gospels. And it was because you know the first three Star Wars were incredibly gritty. The photography, you know, the cinematography is amazing, but you can see that it's not fake. And uh, that it's, you know, real sets and not green screens where the first three, everything is just too cleaned up. And that's one of the distinctions between uh, the real Gospels, the four canonical Gospels, and uh, and uh, the Gnostic Gospels, is that the Gnostic Gospels really give you a cleaned up super spiritual Jesus. And uh, and uh, the, the canonical Gospels give us Jesus in flesh, in real time, real history. And John, even though it's the last go- Gospel keeps the grittiness just like absolutely absolutely and so um and so we come right on to the shores of the river jordan the banks of the river jordan with john the baptist hailing uh here is the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world and uh, notice it's not just sins jesus hasn't come just to fix you up and uh, clean you up and make you better uh the lamb of god has come to make you uh, brand spanking new uh, Dale Bruner, in his magisterial commentary on John, says that what we have here is John's basic worked-out Christology, which is really the true Christology, Christology of the church, is it's on three points. It's a good three-point sermon here. First, a man is coming 
right after me, the historical Jesus, his true humanity. Second, who actually ranks well above me, the royal Jesus, his true messianic identity. And third, you have because he came way before me, the preexistent Jesus, his true deity and divinity. So here you have like kind of in packed in just a couple verses in John, the end of John 1, a picture, a snapshot of the church's full orb Christology. That's really powerful and um, and uh, true. And uh, and I think that um, and that we see what John's ministry is actually all about is that um, is that he is not there just calling people to repentance, but he is there through water to give us an epiphany, that epiphany, that revelation, that eureka, that here is the Messiah, the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. I love that image of Matthias Grunewald's Eisenheim altarpiece, and uh, it is um, it's it's well known because it's one of the first um, first images, and you can hear on, on our Mockingbird cast from um, a Lent. Um, but I talked a little bit about that. But uh, um, you have Matthias Grunewald pointing to Jesus, and this was his ministry: not simply to call people to repentance, but to point them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Can I have my Andy Rooney moment here? Yeah, go for it. The end of this passage reminds me of something that irritates the heck out of me. I hate when I go into a re- retail store and I ask the salesperson, I'm pretty extroverted, I often talk first, I say, how are you? And they respond, can I help hmm. you? Like, I hate when people respond. It's like they're dialed. It's like they're kind of, it's almost as if they're not really listening mm. to what you're saying, right? Now, th- you could see that as going on in this verse, but actually, I don't think it is. It, it, they, they, the disciples actually get it right. Jesus asked them, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? Like what we're looking for is you. And we want to go after wherever your tabernacle. Oh. It's like the, it's like Jesus plus nothing is everything. That's amazing. And I think that, that this only accentuates John's point in what he had come to do. You know, I think about... Um, uh, uh, I think about that and, you know, he, there he is and he's releasing these disciples to go and be with the one who is greater than he. And, uh, and so there they go and they follow with him. And, uh, and this, um, uh, begins it all. There are some times where it's acceptable to answer a question yeah. with a question. <laughs> and this is the most famous one of them all. Thank, thank you, you, Jake. Scott. And thank you to everyone who's listening. We will see everyone or at least you'll hear us once again next week. Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. To find out more about Mockingbird, head on over to our website, mbird.com. And if you've got thoughts or feedback, insights you'd like to share, this is a new endeavor, so we'd love to hear them. You send me an email at scottjones at mbird.com. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.